Dear Father, we thank you for this uh, wonderful word from John. Uh, we thank you that he has, uh, well, that he and the other apostles wrote down for us trustworthy words, trustworthy doctrine that we could learn from, that we could measure up other doctrines against. So we pray that we would be faithful to learn your word, to learn who you are through it, and that we would measure all sorts of influences and experiences in our life against the, uh, the perfect interpretation of your word. Uh, so we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We're past the halfway mark. So we're uh, racing through 1 John. We're actually clipping along pretty fast. So I'm uh, pleased with that, but I hope we're uh, spending enough time in each section. We have just finished our second section in 1 John, where we learned about the anointing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit, which empowers us with the ability to keep God's otherwise impossible commands, those commands which require his righteousness. We have learned about abiding, and as we abide in the Spirit, he fills us and we are empowered, and then are acting. All of this goes together. We are anointed, and as we abide in him, we are able to act. Now we move into our third section, and with this, 1 John is going to conclude. Faith, fellowship, and forever, eternity with him. That is what we are looking forward to, is our glorification, and right now we're in that limbo state between, called sanctification. That one in which we still have the flesh, we are still capable of depending on the flesh power, but we have the ability now to rest in the Spirit to follow the Spirit, and that's going to require continued faith and continued fellowship with Him. And that's what John is going to focus the rest of his time on. So this morning, our study is in testing the spirits. And as we'll see, this is a bit of a play on words for John. This is a uh, often quoted section of Scripture, one we go to when dealing with cults or um, or false practices within the church, and it's a very important passage for us to understand and to go back to time and time again. The main idea this morning then is how do we know truth from error? How do we know what a genuine act of the Spirit of God from a deceiving sign and a deceptive doctrine? There's lots of false doctrine taught in the church and outside of it. How do we discern? There is only one way to discern, and that is the Word of God. Many people, ironically and often, use those signs which must be discerned in order to discern. It's circular reasoning. The Holy Spirit had a manifestation in my life, and I began to speak in tongues. Therefore, my message is confirmed. This is bad doctrine. And this is not a way in which we operate within the church. We have to run everything through the lens of Scripture. That is our only standard, and it is the standard we must keep. John is flowing naturally through his argument here. And remember just two verses earlier, 1 John 3, 23, he told us his commandment to us that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he commanded us. This reminds us of the Old Testament commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart mind, soul, and strength, and to love one another as we, yeah, love one another as we would love ourselves. 
Here this is changed a bit. Here we are told, believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ. This tells us what to believe, what to think. And then we have an action, love one another. This flows out of it. We have orthodoxy in the first line, and we have orthopraxy in the second line. Proper belief, proper thinking, and then proper action, proper activity. The result of this was that one who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. Remember, abiding is the name of the game. Abiding is what we do naturally as we continue to believe and as we are obedient. It is unnatural for the Christian, though this does not mean it is uncommon. It is unnatural for the Christian to step outside of abiding with Christ. This is our natural, normal state. This is where we should be. We have to choose to depart by choosing to be disobedient, just as Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And then the evidence. We know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now this is an obvious allusion here to the Holy Spirit. And he's going to call him the Spirit of God in the coming chapter, which we're about to address. But this brings up that necessary question. How do we know it's the Spirit? How do we know it's the Spirit moving within us? We can be deceived. We've learned that already in the first three chapters of John. It is possible for us to be deceived. How do we know? John continually gives us these tests by which we can know. And so here we learn the principle for how we can know that we are being influenced by the Spirit. He begins, once again, in connecting this theme for us by calling us beloved. Agapetoi, remember agape was that kind of love that we are able to practice with him working through us, that self-sacrificial love. He's reminding us of the self-sacrifice of God through his son Jesus when he calls us agapetoi. And we know that all of this is one thematic section because that's how he begins 1 John 3.21, beloved. And next week, when we look at 1 John 4.7, that's how he's going to begin that section. We have our orthodoxy and orthopraxy coming out of 1 John 3. So our question is, to believe or not to believe? What do we believe when we encounter a view from the world, or a view even from within the church that doesn't seem to sit well with Scripture? How do we know whether to believe it or not? 1 John 4.1 says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, this is uh, seemingly quite metaphysical. Test the spirits. How many of us even sense spirits? I'll be honest with you, I, I don't feel I'm a very spiritual person in that sense. I don't feel spirits and presences around me. I don't feel any of this. I wouldn't believe it if I did. Perhaps that's why. But spirit has many different meanings in the Greek. It doesn't, as, as we use it in English, refer first and foremost to supernatural beings. In fact, its first use is just simply wind. This is the common Greek word for a gust of wind. A pneuma. It's also the word for breath. When we breathe, that's pneuma in Greek. 
it's used of the angels. They're called ministering spirits in Hebrews. It's used of demons, where they are spirits of demons. For example, in Revelation 16, those ugly spirits that look like frogs that come out of the false messiah, the false prophet, and Satan. Numa is also used for the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, as it's called in 1 John 3.24, in uh, Romans 8.9. It's used of the human spirit. When our spirits are lifted, our spirits are elevated. This is our way of thinking, our emotional base. And here, it's being used for teaching, just as it is in 2 Corinthians the end of this section, 1 John 4, 6, the spirit of error and the spirit of truth. It's going to become more obvious there. Revelation 19, 10, where we see that Christ is the spirit of prophecy. 2 Corinthians eleven four 4 says, If one comes and preaches another Jesus, this is teaching, whom we have not preached, that's the apostles, or you received a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted. You bear it beautifully. This is Paul telling the Corinthian church to be careful about what they believe and what they adopt into their doctrine. There are different gospels preaching different saviors, preaching a different method of salvation and a different method of living. These are deceptive spirits, deceptive teachings that have gone out into the church. In fact, we are warned to judge teachers by their fruit. And contrary to popular belief, their fruit is not their works. Their fruit is their words. In Matthew 7, 15, it says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but bad trees bear bad fruit. That's a general principle we can all hold on to, isn't it? Matthew 12, 33 then says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. What is the fruit then of these false teachers? Jesus says, You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? Good words can't come from a bad stock. For the mouth speaks out of what or of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasures what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasures what is evil. So this then is the basis of this command to test the spirits. We are to test it to see if it's from God. Remember, that's a source. Does this truth find its source in God? And the reason we have to test this is because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Before we heard that they had gone out from us, John said, now we see where they've gone to. They've spread out into the world, just as God has sent the apostles out into the world to preach the gospel. So Satan has sent his false prophets out into the world to preach false gospels. And so when we measure doctrine, we have to measure it by the apostles. The things that we say, the things that we believe, and the things that we teach are very important. Back in Deuteronomy, under the Mosaic Law, this was the test of a prophet. 
the actions they did were important, but the test of a prophet was the words that they spoke. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, see, there's an experience. How do we test that experience? And the sign or the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you have not known and let us serve them. So here's the issue. There's a sign that comes true. The sign doesn't prove the message, but the message is going to prove the sign. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. False doctrine is going to appear. You are going to hear false doctrines, and you are going to be given the choice to listen to it, to accept it, or to reject it. How do we do that? Only by the word of God. Thankfully for us, this is completed. It's fully recorded for us. The canon of scripture is closed. We have a calibration tool which is not going to be added to. There's no further calibration to it. Doctrine is set and settled. Deuteronomy 13.4, you shall follow the Lord your God and fear him, and you shall keep his commandments, listen to his voice, serve him and cling to him. And the very foundation of that for us is what we believe and where we find what to believe is in his word. In Acts 20, verses 29 to 30, we see Paul warning of these false teachers who are going to come in after the apostles and try to change or distort that gospel. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Acts 17 had a great example of this, where the Jews chased Paul and his disciples from one town to the next. Anytime Paul opened up the Old Testament and taught them about Jesus from it, the Jews would get upset and cause a stir in the city, out of jealousy leading people away. We'll look at that in a minute. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2 says, The Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. We have a temptation to always view things as from our own perspective. So we look at the latter days and say, well, that's now, that's today. Before this, people have been generally orthodox, but today people are falling away. We have to remember that Paul wrote this probably in about 65 AD. By John's time in 90 AD, this is already occurring. This falling away in the latter days was present with John. This is something that has generally characterized the entire church age, this conflict of truth and falsehood. These men who forbid marriages and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So what are they doing? How are they causing dissensions and uh, instituting false doctrines within the church? They're laying on them legalistic, uh, unbiblical things that they need to adhere to. You need to do this in addition to faith. You need to do this in addition to love. You need to do this in addition to the commandments of God. And it's causing dissension because it's taking away the liberty that we have in God. 
And so here's that key point for Paul. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God. In other words, the word of God sets this apart. The word of God is where he goes to see that this is okay. The apostles, the false apostles, the false prophets are adding to that. Adding commands and adding rules, adding limits beyond what the apostles taught. 2 Peter 2.1, but false prophets also arose among the people. Here's Paul now, or Peter now speaking, and this is probably in the late 50s AD. So we see before Paul was even gone at the end of the 60s, this false doctrines had already entered in. Peter was probably writing this from the city of Babylon. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So these doctrines are going to get to the very heart of our faith. They're going to get to the heart of who Christ is. That Christology is going to be distorted. And many people might look at this and say, well, these are licentious people. These are people being led away by their sensualities. Legalism must be good. It's licentiousness that's bad. Well, we forget just how much legalism is gratifying to our flesh. This is why we get all sorts of monks who uh, beat their bodies and whip themselves with stripes in order to feel like they are serving God because this does something in the flesh. This serves the flesh. And how gratifying to the flesh is it to put rules and restrictions on other people that they then have to follow? This serves our power instinct. We want power over others. We don't necessarily want God's power over us even that power of liberty. Jude 4 tells us, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand written about for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude wrote closest of all those other apostles to the time of John. This is what has happened now in the church where John is ministering. And now John was the pastor of Ephesus, but he was probably the bishop over all of, of, uh, of Asia Minor, which means when he's writing the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, he's writing to those churches that he oversaw. And when he writes those letters, we see that some of his advice from 1 John is taken. They start testing those doctrines. They start testing the spirits, but they do it with an attitude of they want to test these apostles to see that they fail. This is also a bad and dangerous attitude that we have in the church. I'm going to be a discerner. I'm going to go into this church and discern all their bad doctrine and fix it. Well, this is a bad attitude to have. We're to test the spirits to see if they're from God. We're not to test the spirits to see if they're from Satan. If they're not from God, they are from Satan. The goal is to find what is approvable and to promote that. When I was in 
Canada for college. I went to a little church called Faith Presbyterian, or no, Faith Community Presbyterian Church. It was a small group, about 25 people. So we were excited anytime visitors came. And these two gentlemen walked in one day, and uh, they looked kind of like the wolf and the fox from Pinocchio. That should have set us off right at the beginning to a uh, worry. Well, we got in a conversation with them afterwards, and we asked them what brought them here. And they said, we are discerners. That's our spiritual gift. We've come here to see if you are a true church or a false church. At this point, my pastor just walked away. But I kept talking to these guys. They kept telling me, well, we went to the Unitarian Church, and we proved them false. We went to the Methodist Church. We proved them false. We went to the Anglican Church. We proved them false. We're here to see if you're false, too. Oh, great. Welcome. Grab a cookie and some coffee. <laughs> this is not the spirit that we're told to have. We're told to be careful. We're told to be discerning, and we're told not to be led astray by false doctrines. But we are not told to go on the hunt for false doctrines. You know, back in the, I think it was the 80s or the 90s, the Iranians got particularly good at mimicking American $100 bills. They flooded the markets with nearly undetectable bills that were fakes. And it wasn't until a banker in Hong Kong noticed that there was just something a little off about this bill. He took it under a microscope and he saw that it was not like the American $100 bills that he's used to finding. He knew so well the genuine dollar bill that when a false dollar bill went across his desk, he knew it. He knew that there was something off. Not because he spent his time focused on studying all these false dollar bills, but because he spent his time focused on the new one. Now, what's the irony in this story? This was a man from Hong Kong. The Americans didn't even get that their dollar bills that they were using weren't their own dollar bills. I recently had a, a counterfeit dollar bill. I tried to put it into the ATM and it spit it back out and says it doesn't accept checks. And this isn't a check, this is a dollar bill. I couldn't tell the difference. We want to know our scriptures so well that when we hear a false doctrine, we know that that's not in God's word. God's Bible is pretty long. It's a pretty big book. Probably the longest book I've ever read. How do we know it so well then that we know what's in it? We read it and we read it again and we read it again. We focus on it. We meditate on it. This is how we've been given to know God. So as much as you want to know him is as much as you're going to read that word. First Peter 1.20 says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now look at that principle in there, and this is why God's word is so trustworthy. Because God's word was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So if we want to test the Spirit, if we want to test that Spirit to see if it is true or if it is false, read the word that the Spirit inspired. It's trustworthy. It is true. This is our calibration device for truth and error. 
Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, and that is through the living and enduring word of God. It's through the word of God that we found our salvation, that when we believed it, we were changed in a moment from the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of light. And it's that same word that we want to hold on to through our entire Christian walk. And so it is by this, by testing the spirits, by measuring it up against God's word that we know the spirit of God. Now I promised you we'd come look at Acts 17 where Paul encounters a couple Jews who don't like what he's teaching. Now these are sometimes called the Judaizers in the New Testament. All of the church at the very beginning was Jewish. It was a sect of Judaism. And then the Samaritans were grafted in. And then the Gentiles were grafted in. Well, it was the Jews who never believed in the Messiah who continued to come against this Jewish sect that was inviting Gentiles in. And so in Acts 17, as we've moved into about the 40s AD, 10 to 12 years after the ascension of the Messiah, we've got Paul here in uh, Apollonia preaching. It says, now then, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from their scriptures. So he went to the Jew first before he went to the Gentiles because they have a foundation in scripture. They already know what he is about to teach them. He is just going to apply it for them in light of recent circumstances being the coming of the promised Messiah. So he is reasoning with them from their scriptures. He is going to the word of God and showing them where the Messiah is. Explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, which is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. He is the Messiah and he's doing this from the word. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Some of them believed because of this evidence, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. These God-fearing Greeks would have been Greeks that were already sympathetic or believing in the God of the Israelites. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. They end up casting Paul and his disciples out of the town, and they go to Berea. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they, are all, they all act contrary to the word of God. Nope. That's not their standard, to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. This is the issue. The Jews here had been given 
the gift of the word of God. And these particular ones were not holding on to it. They were not going to that to find doctrine. And this can happen to any of us. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these men were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. This is how the Bereans judged whether Paul's message was true or not. They measured it up against the Old Testament. So last week, we looked at our spiritual standard for calibrating our confidence before God. And we saw that the heart is not a good calibration tool. The heart itself needs to be calibrated by something else. And that is by the word of God, the confidence which we stand on. So what is our spiritual standard for calibrating our creed, what we believe from the, from the Latin word credere? Experience is a bad standard. Experience is not a standard. In fact, it is evidence requiring interpretation. We do this. And in fact, we've gotten used to hearing the term, follow the science. Science needs to be interpreted. Data, evidence, needs to be interpreted by something. It itself is not an interpretation. How do we understand the experiences we have? including the words that we hear. Scripture is the only standard by which we must interpret all experience. It is God's inspired commentary on life and history. If we want to know what happened and the right angle to have on it in our way of thinking, we go to God's word. That's the only trustworthy source. We don't go to the news. We don't go to movies. We don't go to the newspaper. We don't go to history books even. We can get a lot of data from those, but where do we go to understand that data? Only God's word. So our principle then is to test the spirits by measuring them up against the word of God. John is going to give us an example here, how to practice that. And the first practice is to see if there is agreement with the doctrine of the apostles and the proposed doctrine. The one that he gives us as a foundational doctrine is the arrival of the incarnate Messiah. This is the end all, but not the be all of the test. If they fail this, it's false. It's bad teaching, but this is not the only test because they can get this right. They can get that the Messiah came, that he came in the flesh, that he is holy God and undiminished humanity, but they can get a whole ton of other stuff wrong. But this is the beginning of that test. If they fail this one, you don't even need to go on. It's a false doctrine. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. This word confess is the Greek word homilege, hama meaning the same, and lege meaning speech, to be of the same speech. A better word in English for this might be agree. 
it doesn't necessarily need to be spoken or stated, but if the doctrine does not comport with this doctrine, if that doctrine doesn't necessarily deny, but would contradict the coming of Jesus Christ, then it doesn't agree that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and so it must be rejected. Now, there's a lot packed into these few little words. Jesus Christ, that name itself should remind us of where we've seen Christ mentioned before. John had a nice play on words for us at the end of the second chapter, in which he asks us, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? The Christ, the Christos, is the Hebrew word for Messiah, once again. Translated into English, this is the anointed one. He was anointed for service to God. He was anointed for the task of being king. He was anointed as the sacrifice for our sins. He was anointed for service. We as well have an anointing, the charisma. And by this, John was speaking of the Holy Spirit, that seal that's been placed on us for redemption, and that power that's been put in us by which we can obey and actually do the things that God has commanded us to do. And opposed to this is the antichristos, the anti-anointing, the anointing that comes from the cosmos world, that anointing that comes from Satan, where he is going to channel all of his opposition against God into one being at the end of world history, but in which he has already begun to oppose God. We must confess then that Jesus Christ has come. Now this is a perfect tense verb, which means a past action with present result. It may be reading too much into this to say that this speaks of the eternality of Christ's incarnation. That because he was incarnate in the past, he continues today to be incarnate. This is true. I'm not sure that this verb tense necessitates this, but it does satisfy the fact that Christ, when he became flesh to die for us, did not then give up his flesh afterwards. He continues even today in flesh, but it is glorified, perfected flesh. It is the flesh that we look forward to in our new bodies. But he has come, and he tells us why he came. In John 5.43, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. This is the Christos speaking of the Antichristos. The Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. But another Messiah is going to come, and he is not going to be the Messiah from God. And he is going to deceive them and sign a covenant with them. God's covenant people, Satan is going to sign a covenant with them. Ezekiel calls it the covenant of death. Whereas God, in the new covenant, gives them a covenant of eternal life. John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. This is his source. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. John 12, 46, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. And John 18, 37, 
Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world. To testify to the truth, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. In 1 Timothy, Paul likes to uh, quote a lot of hymns or creeds of the early church. And it's fitting because he is writing here to a young pastor in Ephesus. And he's quoting some of the liturgy of that early church. And he's hoping to come and meet Timothy in Ephesus. He still writes to them. Uh, that message that he would bring to them in person. He says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And so he says, by common confession, this was an early agreement that that church would have. Great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is what they believed about Christ. He came in the flesh. He was empowered by the spirit. He was proclaimed. His name was preached to the nations. People in the world believed in him and he ascended up to the father. This was something that they all agreed on, this common doctrine which this church in Ephesus stood on. And why I use Timothy so often when going through the book of 1 John is because it's written to the same church. First and Second Timothy is written to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. First John was written probably to the church of Ephesus because that's where John was bishop. Ephesus is a very important church in the New Testament. But they confess as well that Christ has come in the flesh. Now this, for our purposes in the church age, is one of the most important doctrines that we can believe. Yes, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Yes, we believe that he came, but who is he? It's because he came in the flesh that he could bring us salvation. It's because he is the son of God that his sacrifice was sufficient for all men. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, the pre-existence of Christ, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He subjected himself to this humility. Though he was perfect God in his form and in his essence, he decided to take on the humanity of mankind. And not only that, but to subject his will completely to God the Father. To divest himself of his own power, the power of the second person of the Trinity, and to depend wholly on the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name 
which is above every name. In Hebrews 2, we see why he had to come in the flesh. Why did he have to become like a man? Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, because you and I are flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. Jesus couldn't have come as an angel and died for man. Couldn't have come as an alien or an ape and died as a man. He had to come in the line of Adam in order to die for man. That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He became like us to save us, to give us hope for a future, and to give us power for our present, to overcome evil to do his will and to keep his commandments. He came as our kinsman redeemer in our flesh to die for us that when we believe in him, we have eternal life. In our present, just as he was empowered by the Holy Spirit in his walk, choosing to depend on the empowering of the Holy Spirit rather than his own divine power, he has given us a model for how we are to live it's amazing that when he was about to go back up to the Father, he told the disciples that they would also do many like things and even greater things. Probably speaking of greater quantity there, because they would have a longer time than just three years of ministry. But they would be able to do those things because they would operate by the same principle, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he had to come as a man because God created this world to be ruled by a man. And man failed terribly, that is, Adam, because they could not rule the world by means of the flesh, because it would not subject itself to God. But the Spirit is subject to God, and Christ, who is that life-giving Spirit, he himself, as a man, will rule over this creation and vindicate God's purpose in creation, bringing ultimate glory to God in his creation. So we know that this confession is from God. This confession is not made by the ungodly. Because this is the very source of defeat of Satan's purpose. This is the very basis upon which our faith is built. 1 Corinthians 3.10, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is built on it. But each man must be careful how he builds, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is why this is John's beginning of the testing of doctrine. This is why it's the foundation upon which he stands. Because if you get the foundation wrong, everything else on top is built on the wrong foundation. It will not withstand the judgment. Only faith in Jesus Christ will withstand the judgment of Christ. And so agreement is a necessity for testing the spirits. If that doctrine agrees with the doctrines of Scripture, 
then it is true. But if it is antithetical to the doctrines of Scripture, then it is not of God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so once again, John circles back to his topic of the Antichrist. Because the doctrine that Christ has already come is foundational for our faith, but we must also know that the Antichrist has already come as well. There are two competing spirits in this world, two competing sources, two competing worldviews. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Everything which opposes Christ is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12, Paul again in that little town of Thessalonica where he was chased out of by the Jews, he says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter from, uh, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. This is the same thing John's warning them about. Don't be led away, led astray by false doctrines, by these false spirits that are coming in and teaching a different doctrine, trying to lead you away from the apostolic faith. Don't listen to them. So he reminds them, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's the man of sin, the ultimate culmination of the Antichrist. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is the goal of the Antichrist spirit. To subvert the kingdom of God and place himself on the throne of this world, where Christ rightly belongs. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now there's a bunch of different interpretations of this restrainer, but I think it's pretty clearly the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit working in and through the church that when the church is removed at the rapture, the Holy Spirit in its present ministry to the church is also removed. It still has its many ministries to the unbelievers and to the rest of the world. But this unique ministry which it does in the church, of restraining the tide of evil. Just as government was given before the Tower of Babel in order to restrain the tide of evil, so was the church, specifically the Holy Spirit within it. So when that is taken away, the lawless one can be revealed. The Antichrist can culminate finally into its personage. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accordance with the activity of Satan. With all power and signs and false wonders. Now, how do we handle those signs and false wonders? Do they validate his message? Absolutely not. But his message is going to oppose Christ just as it does today. And these signs and wonders are already present. They already occur, and many of them occur within the church. People who have divorced themselves from sound doctrine because it's not experiential enough. 
And they hang on to these experiences because it makes them feel like they're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Well, they have abandoned their tool for calibration. And with all deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's the issue. When you abandon truth, you open yourself up for welcoming lies. There's an excellent example of this from the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 22, King Ahab recognizes that uh, he didn't quite get all his spoils of war from the king of Aram. He says, three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hands of the king of Aram. So moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Look first to God's word on his interpretation of the situation. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall I refrain? He gathers a bunch of his friends, his own subjects, and asks them for a favorable answer. And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it unto the hand of the king. So what does Jehoshaphat say then? Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him. All of your hundreds of men, they're all just here to encourage you, to say, yeah, go for it, because that's what you want to hear. Is there a prophet from God that we can ask? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. He doesn't hate him because he's a false prophet. He hates him because he's a true prophet. He hates him because God's word contradicts the king's will. Rather than subjecting himself to God's will, he wants God subject to his own. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him saying, Behold, now the words of the prophet are uniformly prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of the one of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me that I shall speak. So he goes to that source of truth and says, Oh, please tell me what I want to hear. We do that with our Bibles, don't we? Oh, I don't like that verse. Let me skip over to this one. I know I like that one. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. 
Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Why did God resort to this? King Ahab was not looking for a true prophet. He was looking for a false prophet. And even when he was presented with the truth, he rejected it. And in fact, this little stunt by, by Micaiah got him landed in prison. And Ahab went off into war and was killed. Just as Micaiah had said. Ahab refused the word of God. He refused sound doctrine. And the result was that God gave him over to his own desire to have his ears tickled. 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. This is a sad state if in any way the church turns to fables and myths which in many sad cases it has, then we are welcoming, we are begging to be given false doctrine. In the last three verses here in this section, John shows us a stark polarity, a stark contrast between those who love God, those who want to keep his commandments, those who continue in orthodoxy and those who have departed from it. And he does so once again by using these emphatic pronouns. Calling anything emphatic in the Greek language is kind of tricky because you always have to ask, what are they emphasizing? Just being emphatic, it's not like an exclamation point. It's actually doing something. And as we'll see, there are three verses here, three sentences. Each one begins with an emphatic pronoun that emphasizes contrast. There is a stark difference. He is drawing the lines of demarcation between those he is writing to and those who have departed from the congregation. He says, you are from God, little children. Technia. Remember, this technia means born ones. Ones who are born of God. You have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, 1 says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Remember, that's the creed. That's the foundation upon which they stand. And because they stood on this and were not led away by false doctrines, they know certainly, and they have this confidence before God that they are born ones of him. And they know that because they are born of him, everything else true of believers is also true of them, such as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, such as the indwelling of Christ in the believer. 1 John 5, 4 says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. You know, once again, experience doesn't always line up with revelation. It was in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 16, where Jesus told his disciples, I have overcome the world. And guess what they saw that night? They saw Jesus led away into captivity and killed in the morning. 
their experience would tell them that Jesus had not overcome the world, but that the world had overcome him. But if they trusted in his word, then they would understand that this is the victory that we have in him. His sacrificial death on our behalf so that we would not have to endure that sort of death. Our victory is in him and we gain that victory through faith. And those to whom John is writing here had gained that victory because of their faith. And so he says, you have overcome them. Now them is going to be our uh, emphatic pronoun in the next one. So who are the them? The them was already mentioned back in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us. They were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. They were led away by false doctrine. They were led astray because they did not stand on the orthodoxy of apostolic faith. And so John is telling them, you have already overcome because you continued to stand on the truth when they were led astray. You have already overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And who is it that is in them? Some say this is Christ. Some say this is the Holy Spirit. And I say, yes, that is him. John does not, for, for everything that John draws clear lines between, one thing he does not draw any clear lines between in the epistle of 1 John is the persons of the Trinity. This is one of the least Trinitarian books in the New Testament, not because John denies the Trinity, but because he is emphasizing the unity of the members of the Trinity. And so sometimes he even refers to all the members of the Trinity as a single pronoun, he. John 17, 20 through 21, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you but they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. This is the continual abiding of the Trinity within the believer. We don't just have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, though that's the power by which we operate. Christ has come to make his home within the heart of the believer as well. And so has God. They are one and we are one together with them. And this, because this is true of us, we really should have no fear when facing the world. Continue in that same faith by which you were saved. Yes, it's simple. Yes, it's good. Because he who is in the world wants to oppose that simple message. And he does it by many complicated myths and fables. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God and that the world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil one. John 12, 31, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, because he that is in you has cast out the evil one from this world. And the contrast between you is the them. We already looked at these. They are from the world. That's the cosmos, the cosmos system, that which is opposed to God. Therefore, they speak as from the world. And the world listens to them. They have the wisdom of the world and it's enticing to the flesh. 
just like James speaks about in James 3.14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. This is the wisdom of the cosmos system. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Opposed to that, we have the simplicity of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Paul coming to these Corinthians who had been so deceived by all of these other gospels, all of these other truths, these other spirits that had come in and led them away into all sorts of licentious and fleshly behavior. Here Paul comes in and reminds them of the simplicity of the gospel. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? We could ask, where is the college professor? Where is Bill Nye, the science guy? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. One of the least godly places in this world are our centers of education. God has been firmly and thoroughly expelled. In fact, I think it's Richard Dawkins who says we cannot allow a divine foot in the door, though this would answer many of the questions that remain in academia. We simply cannot permit that evidence to be part of our data set. For since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And this is true sometimes, right? We think, well, that's just too simple. In fact, this is where we get the heresy of lordship salvation. Faith alone in Christ alone is just too simple. You also need obedience to be saved. You also need perseverance to be saved. You also need to be undeniably in love with the word of God at every single moment of your life, or else you prove that you were never saved to begin with. Because the simplicity of the gospel is just too simple. It's foolish. And that's the point. That's the point here. It's the simplicity of believing God and believing him for life. What was the issue that lost us life in the first place? Eve did not believe the simplicity of God's word. It was too simple. She started distorting it. She started changing it. It was just too easy. And when she changed it, she subjected herself to Satan instead of God. And she died spiritually, being separated in her spirit from his. We are united in his spirit through Christ, by Christ's obedience. And that is the simplicity of the gospel, that when we believe in Christ and because of his obedience, we have life. And so the you here is set against the them. They have followed these myths and fables, and they've walked away from orthodoxy. They've walked away from the true faith. You, on the other hand, have not. And so in the third emphatic pronoun, he brings them all together as the us. Those who continued in the faith, joined together with the apostles. We are from God. 
He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, when it is measured up against the doctrine of the apostles. Remember 1 John 1, 3-4, his purpose statement for this book. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. We teach you the orthodoxy that we were taught by Christ, which we saw, so that you too may have fellowship with us, so that those who hear the gospel can have fellowship together with the apostles who preach the gospel. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So the main idea for this morning was how do we know truth from error? How do we know that a genuine act of the Spirit of God from a deceiving sign and a deceptive doctrine? There is simply only one answer, and there is only one way, the Word of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of this standard by which we can measure all other claims on truth. We thank you that we can trust it. We thank you that it is yourself revealed in your word uh, so that we can come to know you through it. We pray that we be faithful to know you, to study your word, and to adopt it into our way of thinking. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.